Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access to not only our great daily newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. My guest today is William Kirby, who I'm guessing requires... Absolutely no introduction to most of you listening, as he is one of the most eminent scholars in the field of China studies. Bill is T.M. Chang Professor of China Studies at Harvard University and Spangler Family Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. He is a Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor and for decades now has taught, along with Peter Bull, Harvard's legendary Chinese history course, the one made famous by John King Fairbank. Bill is the author of many books, including Germany and Republican China, but today, we are going to focus on his latest book, Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China. Published last year, the book brings together Bill's deep knowledge of the German, American, and Chinese higher education systems and really draws on his many decades of experience in multiple institutions in each of these systems, not just as a professor, but you know, in administrative capacities as well. He has served as the chair of Harvard's history department and as director of the university's famous Fairbank Center, as well as serving as dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, and has been deeply involved in many of the key academic American institutions in China, including in the founding of Duke Kunshan and as the chair of the Academic Advisory Council of Schwarzman College at Tsinghua. He also brings his business school approach to the book, it's really built on case studies, including case studies of what's now called the Humboldt University of Berlin and the Free University of Berlin for the German universities, Harvard, a Duke, which is just up the street from me right now, and uh, my own alma mater, Cal Berkeley for the U.S., and Tsinghua, Nanjing University and the University of Hong Kong for China. It is no exaggeration at all to say that he is uniquely qualified to have written a book like this, a comparative study of the modern research university. It is truly eye-opening, and you're going to find yourself surprised 
that reading about 19th century German universities is so very interesting. William Kirby, Bill, welcome at last to Seneca. My great pleasure, Kaiser. Thank you for having me. So great to have you on the show finally. I'm so delighted that we could do this. Okay, so because this is a podcast about China, we will, of course, focus on the final third of the book um, about China's universities, but because the story you tell is one in which each of these national protagonists, if you will, Germany, the U.S., China, um, each builds on what came before, we do, I think, need to lay a little groundwork at least summarizing what, you know, Germany and especially what's, you know, now called Humboldt University of Berlin contributed to the creation of the modern research university and, you know, how that inspired and served as the foundation for American innovations uh, in higher education. So, and after that, we can talk about, you know, how in turn American universities went on to serve as a template for some Chinese universities, which, by the way, also drew on Germany quite directly as well. So why don't we start off, as you do in the book, with Germany and this idea of Wissenschaft. The idea of Wissenschaft, of science, and it broadly conceived, was that a university, you know, universities, Kaiser, are more than a millennium old. Uh, or institutions that call themselves universities are that old. But the modern research university is no more than 233 years old this year. And it was founded in 1810 in Bergen in the aftermath of a terrific military defeat by Prussia Mm -hmm. at the hands of Napoleon, in which the monarch, Frederick William III, said something that I've never heard a political leader say since. He said, we will replace with intellectual strength what we have lost in physical strength. Hmm. And he deputed an enlightenment intellectual, Wilhelm von Humboldt, and an extraordinary cadre of individuals uh, to create a modern teaching and research institution in Berlin, which had never had a university, and to focus that university on not simply the propagation of knowledge from one generation to the next, but the creation of knowledge, the first self-designed research university, the work of professors not simply to teach, but to create knowledge and to create it in the company of students, a unity of teaching and learning, Mm -hmm. and an institution that would have, as it was said in German, Lehrfreiheit, the freedom to teach, and Lernfreiheit, the freedom to learn on the part of students, a university that even if funded by the state would be essentially autonomous in setting its own academic agendas, and a university, and this is the realm of Wissenschaft from historical science to literary science, as it would be called in German, to natural science, that the pursuit of knowledge would be at the heart of things across the university, and the heart of the university would not be any professional school, but rather, well, they called the philosophical faculty, what we would call today the faculty of arts and science. Mm -hmm. And this model, when you think of it, you can now find everywhere in the world. Right. And there isn't a major research university that does not, in large measure, follow the model established in Berlin in 1810. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So there's no question at all that Germany really dominated, you know, uh, the 19th century. Just as there's no question that, that the United States dominated the 20th. Uh, but you argue that the U.S. is, you know, rather squarely shooting itself in the foot um, as as politicians, politicians of, let's say, one party in particular, uh, are pushing to defund public higher education in the majority of American states right now. Ironically, I mean, it's those same people who are always going on about, you know, how China threatens us and, and 
allegedly, you know, uh, is is poised to to rob us of our primacy uh, when, in fact, you know, the universities are such a, an important piece of that. There's another major way in, in which America of recent years seems hell-bent on self-sabotage when it comes to the, you know, this really this extravagant advantage that we have right now of, of having the world's best universities, or so many of them anyway. And that is in the way that, you know, the national security concerns and, and sometimes outright xenophobia and especially xenophobia, and, and not just on campuses, but really in, in, in the broader body politic, are pushing away Chinese students and scholars and making them feel unwelcome and even unsafe here. Uh, the DOJ's China Initiative, which we talked about a lot on this program, may have changed its name and hopefully become more aware of the dangers of profiling, but there's no, que- no question at all that America is still not the welcoming place that it was just 10 years ago for Chinese students. How much of an impact are we seeing so far? What do the enrollment numbers tell us? Well, let me take a step back and say that American universities, just to follow the first part of your comment there, became great research universities by, in many ways, plagiarizing the norms of the University of Berlin and of other great German universities. Sure. And if we if we had rankings of the kind we have today, as late as in the 19-teens, probably, uh, eight of the top 10 universities in the world would have been German, and the other two, Oxford and Cambridge. No American university close. The 20th century changes that dramatically, of course. Uh, German universities collapse under Nazism and the war, and American universities rise and rise to a level in which they now dominate these global rankings in an extraordinary way. And just as the best and the brightest of young Americans, and particularly anyone who wanted to pursue a profession in scholarship, went to Germany in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. today, much of the world, particularly of those who wish to be in higher education, will come to the United States also for their education because we have the drawing power today. And that number, when you think about it, has just grown enormously over the last decade and is now beginning to slip. There were 130,000 or so Chinese students in American institutions in 2009, and it went up to as many as 360,000 in 2018. Right. Now it's dropped a little bit, about 8%, uh, to about 290-something thousand. Uh, but you see warning signs as to where this may be going because of some of the issues that you've just raised. In 2015, about half of Chinese students planning to study abroad wanted to study in America. But now right. that's about 30%. And uh, more wish to study, not all can, in the UK. And this has you know, big implications. It, it is, there are financial implications, of course. There are $15 billion uh, to the US economy was contributed by Chinese students in 2018. But a bigger one is a sense of the loss of attractiveness of the United States and a little bit of a loss of competitiveness in this regard. Now, many Chinese parents would still want and prefer their children to come uh, to American universities as distinct, for example, from Chinese universities. But we are in many ways shooting ourselves in the foot. There are quotas uh, on many public universities for the number of -of out-of-state students, which automatically limits the number of international students who can mm-hmm. come to them. And you can see this very clearly at Berkeley and UCLA and other s- schools of the UC system. But above all, the biggest long-term weakness in the United States, you know, and I'm speaking to you from 
a university that's financially rather well off, um, (laughs) Harvard. But there has been, particularly in this century, a steady defunding of public universities, of public higher education in the United States. And 44 out of 50 American states are today disinvesting in higher education since 2008. Uh, This is a very dangerous moment, it strikes me, in which both politicians and the general public are refusing to support institutions that did as much or more, actually a great deal more than famous older institutions like my own, uh, to make this country the economic powerhouse that it is. California today would not be the California we know without the great University of California system. Right. There are many aspects of how we become less welcoming, the China initiative, the sense of uh, the the social issues uh, in American cities, gun violence, anti-Asian racism. All of this contributes to an an image that is a darker one to the outside uh, than we would have had even a decade ago. Yeah. It's really just such a, a terrible pity. Uh, there is so much in your book about the American higher education system, and I really enjoin everyone to to read it. It's, it's just fantastic if you're at all interested in, in tertiary education. Um, but this being a show about China, I do want to turn to, to China's universities. Um, but before we get into too much of the history of them, I, I guess I want to give listeners a sense of the scale of, of the ambition right now of Chinese universities, the sheer uh, scale of it and, and the sense of, of, you know, what's already actually been accomplished. Because, I mean, I, I keep an eye on such things, or I like to think so, but still, some of the statistics that I came across in the early chapters of your book were just, you know, mind-blowing to me. What is happening right now in, 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 in terms of the level of investment, the enrollments in higher education? Last time I looked, I mean, I, I seem to remember that less than 10% of 18 to 24-year-olds in China were enrolled in universities. And now I think it's actually higher than the percentage of Americans of the same age. That's, that's absolutely right, Kaiser. So education in Chinese universities, since they were founded in the late 19th century, has historically been for an elite, for a very right. small number of individuals. And the, this number was taken to the vanishing point during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, but it began in the reform era to come back. But think of, think of these numbers. In the year 1990, there were 2 million university students in China. By the end of that decade, by the year 2000, there were 6 million university students. Uh, I went to a lunch with the Minister of Education around 2008, and I asked him, how many students are there today in, in Chinese universities? And he said, Oh, 23 million. Oh, my God. And this was one of these long and endless and wonderful Chinese banquets, many, many courses. And by the time dessert came around, the number was 26 million. Uh, (laughs) Somebody came and whispered a new number into the minister's ear. Today, that number is 44.3 million. China has gone in the course of this century from about half the size of the United States higher education system to more than twice the size of it. And the number of students, you know, 44.3 million today um, and rising. No country is investing more than China in higher education. Nearly 60% of high school age students or 18 to 24 year old students 
in China enroll in one or another form of higher education. That is roughly equivalent to the number in the United States uh, that enroll in some form of higher education from junior college on. But in the United States, and we don't have yet the kind of completion figures for all of those in China, but in the United States, less than 40%, but about 40% complete higher education. China mm. is outpacing us in many ways, both in investment in its elite universities, but also in educating the large masses of the citizenry to be educated and productive members of the workforce. Uh, this is a real challenge for the United States and a real success story for China's investment in higher education. Absolutely. Although I do wonder whether these you know, sort of youth unemployment figures that we keep reading about in China are maybe a result of elite overproduction in China. I, I, I often wonder whether maybe they're graduating yeah. too many people. Yeah. Well, that's that's just it. Of course, when parents spend a lot of money to send their children, then they don't. You know, at the elite universities in China, they, they're not terribly expensive, but it can cost you a great deal in the education of your child before that time yeah. to get them into an elite university. And private universities in China, uh, which uh, take up about a quarter of the uh, 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 of the institutions and and of the students. Uh, they are very expensive and can be very expensive uh, indeed. But you know, certainly the historical expectation is that a, a, a spot in an elite university or in any university would be a pathway to a professional success, a successful professional career. And that can no longer be guaranteed given the numbers that we've just discussed and given, right. this, given the slowdown of the Chinese economy. And particularly, it can't be assumed that you will automatically land either the private sector or cushy state sector job uh, that might have been expected even 10 years ago. Right. And that's an interesting paradox that you just brought out that, you know, Chinese universities, uh, the most highly selective of them still functionally kind of operate on a quota system that gives preference to people in that geography, in that locale. And since most of the best schools are in Beijing and then in, in Shanghai, and they are basically free or very, you know, low-cost universities. You end up with people from the wealthiest cities paying little, and people from poorer areas actually paying a lot for these private universities, which arguably don't don't give them, don't equip them as well for for the job market. So uh, there's a real irony here. Um, now it's you know, China in this in this regard is there's so many areas in which China is rather like the United States, and particularly. Equality of opportunity in education is as lacking in China as it is in the United States. And where you are born, who your parents are, matters enormously. Success comes much more readily to the well-off and to the well-connected there as here. And so it has been for a very long time. I mean, even though there was this ladder of success in imperial China, and that's one of the things I want to get into maybe as we begin looking at the history of universities in China. I've always been fascinated by the continuities, and I don't know if we can talk about you know how, how extensive they are, but I've always been really interested in in the 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 place of the university educated who are functionally the intelligentsia, the zhishifenzi, right? Um, people who are university educated um, in Chinese society. I'm I'm interested in how. How continuous is this with the old imperial civil service examination? 
uh, and the imperial bureaucracy that it produced. So, you know, with your historian's hat on, Bill, maybe you can talk a little bit about the continuities insofar as there are any, and maybe about the limits to how useful it is to think in terms of those continuities. I think there are continuities, and then obviously in terms of massification, rather significant discontinuities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But in continuities, of course, the universities are founded just as the old examination system is foundering in the late Mm -hmm. 19th century. The first university to be founded is what's today called Wuhan University in 1893, Mm -hmm. founded as the Self-Strengthening Institute, Mm -hmm. a place to help modernize China's military, in fact, and its industry uh, in the wake of uh, the incursions of the West uh, over the course of the 19th century. Uh, And by 1905, the old examination system is abandoned by the Qing government, and in place already are institutes like Wuhan, and then the Imperial University, which becomes Peking University. Uh, And it takes on the role of educating people who should have a natural leadership role in society, not quite in the way the old Hanlin Academy might have done, but because one is not automatically in the bureaucracy. But when the great president of Peking University, Tsai Yuanpei, established that university on the model of the University of Berlin in many ways in the 19-teens, re-established it on Humboldtian values, uh, freedom to teach, freedom to learn, institutional autonomy, and so on. He did so in the midst of the so-called warlord era in China, but was determined that this place be a place where the elite of China could come together and learn and grow together, educated uh, at once in China's great tradition, but also in the leading areas of scholarship of modern universities in Europe, uh, North America, and in Japan. And Peking University students, not just Peking University, but perhaps especially Peking University students, have had a sense of what you might call a public purpose Right. ever since that moment. Uh, a very small number of them uh, caused a big trouble for the government on May 4th, 1919. Uh, beginning a major political movement that nearly brought down the uh, Beijing government of that day. And they've been causing trouble for governments ever since. Big demonstrations in 1935, of course, most famously in 1989, uh, and also most recently in last uh, October and November in China, protesting the zero COVID policies that in part as a result came to an end. That's, That's right. The sense that these individuals are part of China's future has always mattered to governments, and it has given them not a perfect by any means, but a certain degree of political immunity to be critics of the emperor. Yeah, I've, I've always been drawn emotionally and intellectually to the ferment of the new culture in May, May 4th era. And you know, I think it was great to just read about Tsai Yuanpei uh, in, in your book, that period that he was there at Beida, you know, he brought in people, you know, like like Li Dazhao and then Chen Duxiu, um, you know, who were the, the co-founders of the Chinese Communist Party. Mao Zedong was the a librarian there uh, at, at the Peking University Library at that time. And then, of course, you know, there were also liberals that he brought in, like Hu Shi, you know, who were just seminal luminaries of, of, of China's enlightenment. Uh, and he, as you say, I mean, he very much left 
a stamp there, and and we'll we'll talk more about about that stamp. Um, maybe we can save our discussion of universities during the Nanjing decade for when we talk about Nanjing University itself, because you know that. Sure. And let, let's skip forward though. I think there's a tendency in accounts of universities in China to you know skip right past the war years and even you know through the early PRC, pausing only to talk about the wreckage that was done during the Cultural Revolution. Before, of course, they get to the rebirth, the revival of higher ed in in Deng Xiaoping's time. But maybe let's stop and talk a little bit about the state of Chinese universities before the Cultural Revolution. Was the party able in the 1950s to restore a semblance of, of, you know, the past greatness uh, to the major universities? Not really. Right. That is to say, at least my belief, and very strong belief, is that the foundation of the rise of Chinese universities is set not so much in the early years of the People's Republic, but in the late Qing and Republican period, Mm -hmm. uh, where China was home to a very small but truly dynamic system of higher education, institutions that were Chinese and foreign, institutions that were public and private, uh, institutions uh, that educated the elites uh, and uh, sent them to all corners of the world. Uh, And the foundations of that excellence are really remembered by the leaders of Chinese universities today. After 1949, these universities, which were very diverse uh, in scope uh, and style, uh, became more uniform in scope and style and became Sovietized, became on the Soviet model, uh, very much geared toward fulfilling five-year plans, individuals were assigned their jobs upon graduation and so on. And it's, and it's, you know, we have to remember that in education, as well as in so many other ways, uh, there is a Soviet DNA in the People's Republic of China that is pretty much indelible. And it exists certainly in the political controls that you see on Chinese universities today. But if you go back in the earlier period, one of the remarkable things is how universities such as Peking University and Tsinghua University, rise to be great universities in China while defending the values of universities the world over, even during the great crisis of China's modern age, the war with Japan, in which they maintained international principles of freedom of speech, freedom of uh, dissent at these universities in the face of an earlier party state, the nationalist party state, which sought to impose its own discipline. And when you think of, you know, the importance of these universities, uh, you know, these universities housed, you know, Tsinghua University, for example, was founded as a prep school to send young Chinese away on boxer indemnity scholarships. Just so that people understand what that means is that the United States actually provided these scholarships with funds that China ostensibly owed to it because of the Boxer Settlement after 1901. That's right. That actually, the China had paid to it. They're remitted. Right, had paid to it back. already, right. So it's uh, Chinese money and American largesse of a certain sort <laughs> that leads to this operation. So a place designed to send people away. One of those people uh, was a, a young man named Zhang Tingfu. Zhang mm-hmm. Tingfu was, a, became a great historian and chairman of the history department at Tsinghua University. In the 1930s, he would go on to be a great diplomat and China's ambassador to the 
United Nations for more than 20 years for both the Republic of China on the mainland and on Taiwan. But I think of him also as uh, in a direct lineage to me because he was the teacher of my teacher, John Fairbank, who learned his Chinese history at Tsinghua University when it was home to some of the greatest historians anywhere in the world. People trained and educated abroad. Zhang Tingfu uh, was educated uh, at Oberlin and at Columbia. Uh, virtually all the Tsinghua faculty, the meeting faculty in that department had international PhDs or a deep level of international training in modern in disciplines that were then very new and very modern. Uh, a remarkable institution uh, that would be destroyed in the Soviet period to be, in order to be rebuilt in the reform period and now has been largely rebuilt at Tsinghua University. It's astonishing to me. I mean, it's, I suppose, testimony to the enduring institutional spirit to these schools that after a 40-year hiatus, they were able to, to sort of you know, rebound back with a lot of that, that old spirit intact uh, after 1978, after, you know, uh, after the Marco Polo Bridge until 1978, really, you know, as you say, they are gutted and then Sovietized and then completely abandoned. Uh, and uh, and only come back to life in the very late 1970s. And that's astonishing. If I can, Kaiser, give you one example of that kind of enduring spirit from that time, there was a great scholar named Wang Guowei who committed oh, yeah. suicide in 1927 as the nationalist troops uh, were coming in to unify the country, coming in to Beijing at that time, fearful that they would end the academic freedom and uh, of the university and academic life as he understood it. On a memorial to him, his good friend, the great scholar Chen Yingche, uh, wrote that his was a spirit independent and a mind unfettered. His was a duli zhe jingsheng zhe xiang. And these are characters that every scholar at Tsinghua University knows today. Absolutely. To this day. And uh, it is part of the, I guess you would call it, the internal DNA of the Tsinghua faculty today. We've all taken pictures standing by that steel, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Is It's exactly that spirit. And as we will get to, uh, that sits uncomfortably next to what the party wants the university to be. And, and uh, we will absolutely get to that. So, so, Bill, your book notes how Chinese universities and their administrators really looked to American universities, uh, to that model in the reform and opening period. Can you talk about what in particular they borrowed as they, they sought to revive Chinese higher education in the early years of reform and opening? Well, I think one of the surprising things that I think that well, people will, will find uh, is that many individuals and the leaders of these universities sought to revive education in the arts and sciences broadly right. conceived not simply in science, technology, engineering, medicine, and so on. Um, and they, um, I'll never forget back when I was dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, this is in the early 2000s, president of a major Chinese university came to visit me in my office in University Hall here. And uh, he wanted to adopt Harvard's core curriculum. Hmm. And I had a joke with him. Well, I offered to sell it to him. <laughs> uh, because we were getting rid of it. But once he heard that we were getting rid of it and, and starting off with a new program in general education, he didn't want our old curriculum. He wanted the newest one. 
Um, And I have to tell you that our curricular, many, many curricular reform plans at Harvard were probably more carefully read in Beijing than they were by my comrades here in the Boston area. Um, (laughs) It's not a high bar, uh, to be sure. Um, And uh, every major Chinese university, even as China has grown in strength in science and technology, and it has been a central aspect of the rise of Chinese universities over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries, every university has experimented in new forms of general education programs trying, you know, believing our propaganda, as it were, that right. we don't train people, we educate people to be critical thinkers. We educate people to be independent of mind, to know what they don't know, and to figure out how to find out what they don't know, to question authority to some degree, and to be productive and inquisitive citizens of a modern world. And the leaders of Chinese universities, in the same way, do not wish their students to be trained in the last best technology or the last best systems of engineering. They want them also to be innovative and problem solvers. And so every one of them has experimented with liberal arts in one form or another, and each one with different models. So Peking University has a Yuan Pei program, an elite and very small uh, program uh, that uh, is in both the humanities sciences and social sciences uh, that is really, I would say, the most difficult such program I've encountered anywhere in the world in terms mm. of what it asks students to do. It's uh, named for Tsai Yuanpei. Yeah. Named after Tsai Yuanpei. So this is a sign of what they wish to do. And of course, depending on political circumstances, the leaders of Chinese universities are not always able to do what they wish. Yeah, I think some of this might be surprising to listeners who have certain notions about China's pedagogical traditions and maybe even imagine that that universities are are also guilty of those things, you know, the you know, emphasis on rote learning and on uh, uh, sort of unquestioned listening to the authority of of uh the, the man delivering the lecture invariably a man. Um but one one thing that they they probably all know about, and which is still very much a fixture, is in the admissions process, the gaokao, the immovable gaokao, that grueling college entry exam that's given to high school seniors over multiple days. Um, can you give us a sense of why it's been so difficult to reform a system that seems, at least to me anecdotally, to be just so wildly unpopular? I mean, everyone I know grumbles about how terrible this thing is. Uh, and yet, it's it, it remains there, fixed and and uh, unmovable. You know, even during years when you know the United States basically stopped stopped asking students to to submit their SAT scores on 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 admissions. Yeah, just think of a world, and this is the 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 world of Chinese education. Think of a world in which SAT scores are the only things that matter for your admission to college. Yeah, and you get one shot at them. Today, it's a little bit better than that uh, in China, and there are some alternative ways of getting into uh, particularly elite universities. But on the whole, the Gaokao still rules. And why does it rule? Because it is one of the very few institutions in Chinese life that people, and particularly the people we're talking about here, are parents. Right. Um, it's the one thing they believe is honest. Uh, mm-hmm. and honestly administered. And by all evidence, it has been very honestly administered. 
But at the same time, for the reasons you discussed before, that it's much easier to get into a university in Beijing if you live in Beijing. Uh, you have to have a much higher score to get into Tsinghua or Beida if you live far away in Yunnan uh, or in Guizhou. Much, much more difficult. It's, it's, it's geared, you know, success in examinations is geared for those everywhere who, from families that have the resources uh, to educate their students at a very high level. Now, mind right. you, that level, that playing field is a little bit more equal today than it was 10 or 20 years ago because the quality of urban public high schools in China, in the leading schools, is, is among the highest in the world. You also have extraordinary private schools, and you have tutors, until very recently, very successful online tutoring companies. <laughs> uh, but tutors, you know, rich families can afford their own tutors uh, to in-house to uh, assist a child in success uh, in higher education. So there isn't, that said, people believe that the Gaokao is fairer than having everybody, you know, you know, for example, you know, what's fair about admissions to American universities when uh, 20% or 15 to 20% of Harvard undergraduates are recruited athletes or right. X number of Harvard students uh, are legacy uh, uh, admits. Right. Um, you know, this is, you know, at least China doesn't have football teams that it has to fill. <laughs> um, and perhaps that they're better off for that. Of course, I say that from a university that last won a national championship in football in 1920. So it's been a <laughs> while for us. But you have so many Americans who try to get their own children into colleges on the basis of whatever sport they're playing in high school uh, for a partial and perhaps only one or two year assistance uh, in, in, in fellowship support, uh, a sport that they will never play the rest of their life as a right. professional. Uh, so we, you know, the Gao Cao is, people in China would worry that if they didn't have it, they would have many other ways around. They, people would, so hold on, people would yeah. go through the back door, not the front door, yeah. into universities. People would do so and gain in through donations. Uh, people would have, uh, you know, China, I'm sure, left to its own devices, Chinese parents uh, are second to none in their support of their children's educational ambitions, and that they would certainly have the capacity to well outdo the so-called varsity blues efforts that we've seen yeah. in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Gaokao is there as a protector of honesty, even if yeah. it is badly flawed. Yeah, it's, it's a flawed but still kind of vaguely meritocratic system that at least is not thoroughly corrupt. So... Look, um, there are a couple of crucial and ambitious programs that I think a lot of people have heard of that the central government launched in the effort to build China's universities into world-class institutions. They are, of course, Project 985, which was launched, as the name suggests, in May of 1998, 985, and Project 211, which confusingly is not about a date at all, but um, to ready 100 universities for the 21st century, so 21. One, right, 100. Uh, so what do these programs tell us about the priority given to higher ed in China in the 90s and the aughts? And, and what did these programs really do functionally besides just sort of say, ah, here are our goals? Uh, they functionally privilege universities that are successful in internal competition. Mm -hmm. um, 
one with another. Uh, they privilege, without question, uh, pre-existing elite universities, right. Peking University and Tsinghua University perhaps above all. Uh, China, as far as I can tell, will always have two number one universities. Right. Um, uh, so significant has government uh, support and, and so important is the history of these universities to China. But what it has done is to raise the bar for many, many other institutions to be not just competitive domestically, but competitive in the larger world of universities, places like Nanjing University, places like Fudan University, um, uh, uh, Nankai University, Zhejiang University, Sun Yat-sen University, across the country uh, in this regard. And you know, it's interesting that in each case, the big investments came at times of economic downturns. 1997, mm. the Asian financial crisis, right. and 2008, 9, 10, uh, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So uh, a man that I think we should credit a great deal for starting this enormous investment is President Jiang Zemin, uh, yeah. who believed in education very strongly, uh, and he begins the building up of the Chinese higher education system in the second half of the 1990s and takes it to a level far beyond what anyone could imagine at that time. President Hu Jintao takes it further still uh, in his 10 years uh, as president. And you know, it's an interesting story about John Zemin. John Zemin was educated at what was then called National Central University, established mm -hmm. by the nationalists in Nanjing, mm -hmm. uh, but had the misfortune of being there during the Japanese war and when the university came under Japanese control. And when the nationalists came back in 1945, they refused to recognize uh, John Simmons' degree from the Japanese so-called puppet university mm -hmm. of National Central. So he joined the Communist Party and went and completed his degree underground at Shanghai Jiatong University. Yeah. Uh, but a man who believed very strongly in the power of education to shape a society uh, and, not, and, and did more than any other leader to begin this trajectory of Chinese higher education. And uh, I think of this toad. because he just passed away last year and was not as widely praised internationally as I believe he ought to have been. Um, just now you, you, you joked about how China will always have two top universities, you know, two number ones. Um, one, Tsinghua, of course, is one of your three case studies, and we'll, we'll talk about that quite a bit. I imagine that most of our listeners know, you know, the respective reputations of Peking University and Tsinghua University. But I thought it was really amazing in your book that, you know, you have no less an individual than Li Daokui, the founding dean of Schwarzman College, you know, who was a very eminent economist who taught at, at uh, the School of, of Economics and Management at, at Tsinghua, um, summing up the difference between the two just so candidly. Can you talk about how Li Daokui characterized the difference between Peking University and Tsinghua? You said, as Li Daokui once explained to me, PKU's, quote, tradition is to be critical of the government, far away from politics. Tsinghua, on the other hand. That, and that's definitely and particularly true in the post-1949 uh, and post-1982 eras. That is to say, Peking University has a strong sense of its own national mission, right. dating back to the late imperial times. And Tsinghua University, particularly in the communist period, has become much more closely aligned uh, with national priorities 
and the priorities of the party state. That said, you find, as I was saying before, spirits independent and minds unfettered at Tsinghua just as you do at Peking University. He said something that's very similar to what Harvard President Neil Rudenstein once told me about the difference between Harvard and Princeton universities. Mm-hmm. So Harvard, you know, a vastly decentralized operation, and Princeton, a highly centralized uh, and smaller and potent teaching and research institution. He said, and I think this is true of Tsinghua, when Princeton works, and I should say when Tsinghua works, it works like a great orchestra. People really are part of the community, and they pull together as one. And Harvard, I think pretty much like Peking University, is a great collection of soloists. Um, you would never put them and imagine them to be an orchestra, um, and yet they may have enormous contributions in multiple different ways across the university and around and across the world. The way that Tsinghua is so integral to China's technological ecosystem, often very much as you suggested, in in harmony with national uh, goals and you know national priorities, it reminds me a lot of the way that Stanford and to extent Cal Berkeley are integral, you know, to Silicon Valley. Can you talk a little bit about institutional entrepreneurship at Tsinghua? What Tsinghua does to foster tech innovation? Because you know, anywhere you go in Zhongguancun, um, you know, for, this has been the case for a very, very long time. There are all these, you know, Tsinghua funded, uh, basically st- startup facilities uh, where they they give space to and funding to and uh, infrastructural assistance to startups. Right. Well, Tsinghua, again, has this, you know, there's a great pre-existing history, but it also became a center of science and technology, particularly in the beginning of communist period, because uh, the leading scientists and engineers and so on from Peking University and from a number of other universities were transferred to Tsinghua University in the 1950s to have kind of role differentiation between the different universities very clear. And so that has been a strength of Tsinghua, although not connected in those days to the private sector at all, but it has become also a highly, however centralized, a a very entrepreneurial place, a place whose graduates go off to both the public and the private sector, an institution that has had spinoffs that, if you look at the area around Tsinghua, it reminds me a bit of the area around MIT, Um, that is to say, uh, a, a highly vibrant set of startups uh, and now biotechnology companies mm-hmm. that have come out of the university or are affiliated with faculty at the university. Uh, and uh, the uh, it is uh, part of, without question, part of the sense of what it means to be at Tsinghua uh, today. But it's interesting to note that when Tsinghua University established you know, celebrated its 100th birthday in 2011, it did not do so by the valorization of all that it has done in science and technology, but by establishing a new, you know, the original Tsinghua building was called Tsinghua Xuetong, Tsinghua Academy, and they established a new Tsinghua Academy, Xin Tsinghua Xuetong, which was to the arts and to the humanities. Uh, theaters, yeah. art museum, and so on, that to, to show that this university was much more than science and technology. Yeah, yeah. So I say that bundle of questions about that that sometimes uncomfortable relationship 
for last, but I want to ask you a little bit about rankings. Um, my daughter, when she was applying to university just a little over, well, I guess a couple of years ago now, I was reminded of just how conscious so many Chinese people are when it comes to university rankings. Uh, I was interested to see how my Chinese friends and family reacted to recent rankings that now place Tsinghua above all but two Ivy League schools. And uh, both Tsinghua and Peking University are in the top 25 globally. Um, some of them were inordinately proud, of course, and others were completely dismissive of this. They, they just thought that was just absolute nonsense. How seriously should we take rankings such as these? How seriously do you take them? Well, rankings, on the one hand, rankings rank only what can be measured. Right. So they rank scientific output, they rank, they rank scholarship in international journals, uh, they rank many, many other things, but they primarily rank scholarship in international journals. That's the most important thing that they do, and then the reputation of faculty, and so on and so forth. That said, so you don't have to believe you could believe, and, and I think it's plausible that Peking University and Tsinghua University are the equal or superior to many of the so-called Ivy League uh, in the United States, certainly given the scope of their enterprises, the scope of their research, and the depth of it in many, many fields. That may well be true. But what is above all obvious and true is that we are seeing today a tectonic shift in how in the rise of Chinese universities compared to others. As I said before, you know, eight of the top 10 universities in the 19-teens would have been German, in my right. view. Today, very difficult for a German university regularly to get into the top 50 mm -hmm. uh, in the world by these rankings. American universities today still dominate these rankings, and yet they are comparatively falling compared with, with others, and Chinese universities are rising in these rankings. And so you cannot, you know, there's nothing absolutely scientific about this. We have to remember that there were no university rankings in the United States that anybody took seriously until about 1983 when a failing news magazine, U.S. News and World Report, decided <laughs> it needed a new business model. And they created, in part, this industry, which is now absolutely out of control and global in scope. But it does tell you about the direction doesn't tell you exactly who is number one or number five or number 15 or anything of that sort, but it does show you that the trajectory is one in which more and more Chinese universities, five now in the top 50, two in the top 15, according to the QS rankings, one of the leading ranking systems, it shows you that they need to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to get into some, you know, potted histories of, of the universities that you selected for your case studies. Uh, we've already talked quite a bit about Tsinghua and its origins, so maybe we'll move on and talk about you know, Nanjing University, which stands out uh, because you know it, it maybe doesn't rank so high in terms of those measurable things like scientific output, number of, of peer-reviewed papers, uh, because its focus is on something that's intangible, but also, um, to me, extraordinarily valuable, which is on teaching, as you make clear. Let's talk about a little bit about the origins of Nanjing University and how it evolved. Um, a couple of things jumped out. Nanda under Luo Jialun in the Nanjing decade, uh, and then under Kuang Yaming in the, in the 1960s, and again under his continued leadership after the end of the Cultural Revolution uh, as he tries to revive historical scholarship, you know, which is also 
a very dicey thing to do in the PRC, where the control of historical narratives are just you know seen as so integral to the exercise of power. Um, can you talk about those things, and, and of course about the Nanjing Hopkins Center, which which you you talk quite a bit about in in that chapter. Really fascinating. But Nanjing University is the reason I chose it to write about is that I didn't want to write about only the two elite universities, but also to look right. at one of the leading, leading, you might think of it as one of the leading provincial universities in China. And Nanjing University is in many ways an excellent mirror of the history of Chinese higher education because it has so many predecessor organizations that became part of it. Uh, one of them was, you know, on the cover of my book is a building that is today known as the Great Northern Building, the Beidalo of Nanjing mm-hmm. University. Um, it's a beautiful building in Chinese style, built originally for what was called the University of Nanking or Jinning mm-hmm. Dashia in 1919 by an American architect uh, in Chinese style. And that building, that university, it, uh, affiliated with it also was a place called Jinling Nushidashua, Jinling Girls College, uh, which uh, was a sister college of Smith College in the United States. But perhaps the most famous immediate predecessor of today's Nanjing University was established by Chiang Kai-shek uh, as National Central University to be the leading right. university in China, established very di- directly on the model of the University of Berlin in 1930. And you know it was established on the model of Berlin because there is a Brandenburg Gate welcoming right. you into that campus. Uh, and it becomes the, the centerpiece really of the, of, of the nationalist effort to put their stamp on Chinese higher education and to be a leading center aspirationally of science and technology uh, during the 1930s. Uh, to these universities and these predecessor organizations all became part of what is today Nanjing University, a great comprehensive, now multi-campus university that, however, carries the great burden of history, the burden of being the capital. After all, Nanjing was the capital of the Republic of China right. during the nationalist period. Uh, Nanjing University, at, uh, National Central University, was to be uh, the university compared to Beida or Tsinghua or other universities uh, later on uh, in the People's Republic. And just as Nanjing itself became not the center of the country politically or otherwise, uh, but rather on the periphery politically, it also became somewhat on the periphery educationally as well. And its loyalty as the center of the old national regime, the old national government, uh, certainly could and would be questioned at various periods of time. It had some of the most brutal battles of any university during the Cultural Revolution, and it would it emerged from that, uh, dedicating itself not to compete on every level with all of the leading universities, and it has less, been less successful in competing in the areas of the heart of hard science, but competing in the humanities and social sciences, and uh, remarkably, as an institution that probably pays more attention to teaching and mentorship than any other leading Chinese research university, mm. but. And it has, like Peking University, very idealistic students. Uh, These students, for example, several years ago, I think it was in 2018, took President Xi Jinping's 
words to heart that they should study Marxism. Right. But rather than studying the official Marxist texts of the party, they went out and formed their own independent Marxist study groups. And then they went to South China to establish neighbor unions in sweatshops uh, down south. This, according to the party, is actually not what Marxism is all about. <laughs> they were severely punished. The party secretary took early retirement, uh, just as was the case at several other universities that had such idealistic students, Marxist students. And Nanjing University had to redo, this is just a few years ago, its school constitution in order to show its fealty to the Chinese Communist Party. And yeah. most recently, and most bizarrely for a university with a great international history, Nanjing University has withdrawn from global rankings, saying that it wants to pursue a an education with Chinese characteristics. Uh, I have no idea exactly what they mean by that, but I think it has a lot to do with the President Xi's thought um, and the what is politically correct today. But they're under enormous, and really for much of their history of the People's Republic, because of where they are in the former capital and what they had been under enormous political pressure. Uh, ironically, I mean, as you say in your book, it was it was Nanda's inclusion on Xi Jinping's shortlist of Chinese universities that were slated for world-class status that actually kind of brought this, well, frankly, un unwanted attention from the center to Nanda, right? Um, that, that, that was... That is true. It is a, it is a great university. It, it has extraordinary scholars. And, uh, you know, it has, for example, one of the best European studies programs uh, in China, particularly on Britain, but on other things. And if you want to study the history of pre-communist party, of pre-communist China, particularly the Republican period, Nanjing University is the absolute center of that study. That's right. I mean, I, I, I suggested that, that you know, this was where uh, the very ambitious effort to write the history of Republican China and to write the, you know, the, 25, the 25th dynastic history was centered, and, and that is always a fraught undertaking. Still waiting for it, too. Let's, let's shift now, in the interest of time, to, to talk sure. a little bit about the University of Hong Kong, uh, HKU, uh, which is the third of the, the Chinese universities that you include as a, a case study. Would it be fair to say that you use Hong Kong uh, as a way of talking about the importance of, of governance and management of the university? That seems to be the emphasis in that chapter. It is. And I think it, you could, it, it's in some sense the governance is central to every chapter of this book, sure. because, you know, in universities, there are so many different ways in which universities are governed, public and private, but different private ones have different approaches as well. Uh, but successful governance is really the most important aspect of what means, what it takes for enduring success of an institution of higher education. How can you make decisions that really poise you for leadership going forward? How are you insulated to some degree, at least, uh, from the whims of the state, which can change every several years, and how do you how do you make you know how do you bring the best faculty and the best students together uh, so that they can learn one with and from another? So the University of Hong Kong. When I began writing this book, my sense was this was going to be the chapter about the greatest research university in China, in Greater China, that was not under the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> so much for that. And today, I find it in many ways the most 
sad and depressing chapter uh, in the book. It is and remains a great research university. Uh, it has had extraordinary leadership uh, over uh, much of the recent decades. It survived and thrived after 1997 and with Hong Kong's return to China. But in the current environment, uh, it has become highly politicized and subject to political intrusions uh, by the state. In this case, not so much Beijing, but perhaps acting for Beijing from the Hong Kong government. Right. And this is a, a great shame for Hong Kong's universities. I served for 10 years on what was called the, what is called the University Grants Committee, which is designed to be a buffer between the government and the different, and the eight public universities in Hong Kong, eight really extraordinary in institutions, including Hong Kong University. But gradually and steadily, as political tensions in Hong Kong grew, uh, even before the great demonstrations of 2018-19, uh, you would see more and more political intrusion onto basic decision-making um, at the university. Who could be appointed a dean? Who could get an honorary degree? And so on. And I was struck by the sense of distrust between the university and its constituents on the one hand and the government on the other when I was uh, part of a three-person governance review body of the University of Hong Kong in 2016. Uh, to look, and our job was really to make a series of recommendations to try to insulate the university from politics and insulate it from political based decision making. And, and it's one of these wonderful things about Hong Kong that you never quite know what's confidential and what's not. If you've read enough James Bond novels or seen enough movies or Le Carre novels, uh, not much in Hong Kong. Uh, stays secret for long. The three of us were meeting in a small room at the university at that time, uh, coming up with our recommendations, one of which was to encourage the chief executive of Hong Kong uh, to recuse himself from uh, political intrusion or political, to recuse himself from decision-making of certain types uh, with the university. He's by law, the chancellor of the university, but it is supposed to be an honorific position, not an mm -hmm. executive position. And we wanted to relieve him of the broadly held suspicion that he was interfering left, right, and center in the university. And as it turned out, we met in this small room, just the three of us. And yet at some point we were summoned to government house to meet with the chief executive who turned out knew exactly what we were planning, even though we had told no one. Uh, so rooms have ears wow. in Hong Kong, yeah. um, and we were berated by the chief executive at the time and told that he would not allow us to do what we wished and that Beijing would not allow us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in any event, sadly, uh, you know, that university, you know, is under, like all the other Hong Kong universities today, is under much greater political pressure than sure. it has been really since the Japanese period of the 1940s. And books have been disappearing from library shelves that are in some sense critical, for example, books about Tiananmen. Uh, 
at that university and at other universities across Hong Kong. And one worries about its future, even though it has at the present an excellent president, uh, a strong faculty, an ex extraordinary student body, it is not immune from the massive political changes that are ongoing in Hong Kong today. And one shouldn't underestimate the nature of those changes. The Hopkins program at Nanjing, it had its own library that was supposed to be insulated from the sort of the bowdlerizing forces of the, of the party. Uh, has that remained intact? Yes, by every account, it has remained intact. And that is one of the, and that is, you know, as we look today in an era in which so much alleged or so-called decoupling exists between China and the United States, uh, and as we look, at least as I look, to ways in which we can re-engage with our Chinese comrades um, in areas of research and teaching. The Hopkins Nanjing program is, I think, an excellent one to study as a successful and enduring example, originally mm -hmm. bringing 50 Americans and 50 Chinese in residential settings, in a residential setting on the Nanjing University campus, but as a separate program uh, to study with each other for two years in advanced language training for both sides. Uh, it has produced extraordinary students who have gone on to work for both governments, but also for the private sector. Uh, and it has been insulated from these winds every which way. Yeah. Uh, this is a source, I think, non, uh, the Nanjing Hopkins program uh, is an example of what I hope we will continue to see in the joint venture universities that exist in China, whether it's NYU Shanghai, or, a Kun or Duke Kunchan University, or the Schwarzman program in Beijing. Uh, that is to say- Or the Yanjing program at Beida. Yeah. The, Yen the superb Yanjing program at, at Peking University. These yeah. programs have been largely immune from the political winds that have done so much under President Xi's tenure to shape Chinese higher education, or to at least limit discussion on the campuses of Chinese universities. And they have not been subject to, for example, to the so-called seven no's, the seven things you are not supposed to talk about at right. Chinese universities that were decreed by the Central Committee in 2013. Right, part of the of document number nine. Now, I know that you've been uncritical of, of the way the party has interfered in or has tried to interfere in some of these programs, but you've been equally critical about the way some American universities have pulled out of joint programs with their Chinese counterparts over things like the expulsion of activist students from partnering universities. I'm, I'm thinking here of Cornell and, and Renmin Daxia, uh, Renmin University in, in, in Beijing. Um, they ended their joint program there. Uh, we've seen a lot of programs like NYU and Shanghai, for example, come under pressure for supposedly knuckling under the censorship demands. But, you know, often this is coming from the American side. So what, what is your position on this? Uh, should we be... Uh, American universities be sort of holding fast to this. I mean, as as that, as you say, maybe that last best hope for continued engagement. I think we should, because we should be humble enough to realize that we have our own major challenges when it comes to academic freedom in this country. In part, under some threat in different parts of the country, where different governments, uh, state governments in particular, are seeking uh, ever more political control of what can and can't be taught at universities. And whenever I say in a public talk that there are seven things you can't talk about at a Chinese university, somebody in the audience will raise their hand and say, well, 
you know, there are at least seven things you can't talk about at Berkeley or Harvard, <laughs> and they're not wrong. Uh, we have different forms of censorship in this in this country. It's not the same thing. It's not censorship from above, but it is a form of kind of corrective censorship uh, that one sees in student bodies across the country. Uh, and if we had a perfect record, for example, in free speech in American universities, you would never have had a free speech movement at Berkeley in the right. 1960s. So we need a little bit of humility as we look abroad. And that case that you give us one, one excellent example to me of the kind of the Americans getting on a high moral horse. Uh, here, this was at Renmin University in Beijing, which also had this extraordinary group of young students studying Marx, going off to start labor unions uh, in, 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 to help workers in terrible conditions, um, in sweatshops. Uh, the students would be punished uh, and you know, because these students were punished, uh, they were actually treated much better, I should tell you, as students, uh, because they were students than if they had not been students. Uh, they were largely not arrested, but many, several were dismissed from the university. These students were punished, and uh, Cornell University decided that it would end its program on labor law with Renmin University right, right. Uh, as a retaliation or as a sign of uh, Cornell's outrage over this activity. My sense was that Renmin tried tried its best to, to, to protect those students. Exactly. They had no idea how much the president and party secretary at Renda had admired these students and how they had tried to protect them. And one of those two lost this position uh, over, over the set of incidents. Uh, so Americans are very good at sanctioning and very right. good at criticizing others and very slow to do the hard work of trying to understand what's really going on. Because the fact is that the values of the leaders of Chinese universities today, and here I mean not just not just uh, presidents, but very often also party secretaries, these are much closer to the values of American university presidents than they are different. And we, we, we punish our those who are closest to us at our own peril. A very good case in point of the similarities between, you know, American university administrators and their Chinese counterparts is their commitment to general education, arts and sciences. Uh, at a really fundamental level, though, the party has a, well, a fraught relationship with this, especially with the social sciences and the humanities, but really with the whole idea of liberal, of, of liberal, of liberal arts education. So in your book, you know, you, you know how, and, and we've talked about this already just earlier, about how Matt Steele, honoring Wang Guowei, one of the four great tutors, uh, reads, uh, But this independent spirit and unfettered thought, as you discuss, uh, is not so easy in the Chinese context, right? I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Where, where do these things stand right now? And what is the direction th things are moving in? I mean, because I think we're not wrong to, to see the walls closing in. Uh, it it feels harder and harder to to, to do this, or to, or to, I mean, it feels like there's this persistent tension, right? I mean, we're we're aware of this between, on the one hand, the desire of the party state to to, you know, I mean, you can put it much most charitably to to you know create educated youngsters who are uh, working for the collective good of of the country, and 
on the other, you know, the the desire of these university administrators, uh, of the, the professors, of course, to educate, you know, critical thinkers. You know, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. The, you know, there's, there's a creative tension and there is real tension between the demands of those who seek to impose political orthodoxy. And this is less important in the sciences uh, than it is in the social sciences or humanities. Um, to impose political orthodoxy on and, and and political controls on what can be said and taught at Chinese universities. I think most Americans would be very surprised to see how much can be said and is said on a daily basis within the walls of Chinese universities. Right. Um, and how much activity can happen and does happen within the walls of these universities and how clued in to how the rest of the world is, is going, the students and faculty at these universities are, uh, whether through VPNs or through other forms. And you have, a, you have a tension between, you know, what the party wants and what educators want. Right. You know, for example, there was a textbook at a major Chinese business school uh, that had been used for years on the Chinese economy. It was an international textbook on the Chinese economy. And suddenly a postal censors said that it was no longer appropriate to be used, yeah. um, even though it was a very unpolitical textbook. And so they, the, the dean of that school at the time then arranged for the author of that textbook to send PDF copies free to every student in his class. Uh. So the censors had done their job. The dean had done his job. Um, and in some sense, everything was fine uh, in this regard. Um, and this is this happens on a daily basis. Um, you know, this is not the first time that Chinese universities have been under great pressure. You know, so this is nothing compared to the Maoist period. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and we have to remember that these institutions, just like American universities and uh, perhaps above all European universities, but just like universities everywhere, these institutions outlast political regimes and they certainly outlast political leaders. Chinese universities are born in the late Qing under the Empress Dowager. They grow and thrive in the Republican period, particularly under the nationalist regime. They are Sovietized in the early communist period. They survive even the destructive uh, and crazed policies of Mao Zedong, uh, they uh, have survived and thrived into the reform era, and they will survive this moment as well and emerge from it, I believe, stronger than ever. However, the, the challenges of politics, you can't underestimate them. Uh, the fact that young Chinese, even at leading universities, are taught a comic book version of their own country's history and are forced to take all these required political courses as their parents and grandparents did uh, in the communist period. All these political courses, uh, and uh, and that's those are the kind of courses where there's real rote learning, not so much uh, outside of the, the political curriculum. But the real risk is that, you know, given the extraordinary students that come to Chinese universities, and China is home to more of the best human capital of any place on earth. Given these extraordinary students, the risk is that 
they great places like Tsinghua or Beida or Nanda will end up with two types of graduates. People who will say or do anything in order to graduate. People who will be either cynics, believing in nothing, or opportunists, taking the, their way forward through this. And that's simply not good enough for China's great universities, and the leaders of these universities know that. Bill Kirby, thank you so much for helping us to make sense of this. I mean, I, I knew that you could be counted on to right-size these sorts of, uh, of, of, of tensions and dilemmas that the universities face. Well, what a fantastic book. Oh, oh, to remind everyone, the book is called Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China. And it was, it's published by Harvard University Press. Bill, uh, we do want to move on to recommendations, but before we do that, let me just uh, offer a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is part of the China Project. And if you like the work that we do here with Seneca and with the other shows in the network, or with the China Project more generally, then the best thing that you can do to help us keep going is to subscribe to Access from thechinaproject.com. You get access to this show early on Mondays, East Coast time, and of course, to our daily dispatch, our excellent newsletter edited by Jeremy Goldcorn and his crack team. No paywall on the many great stories that we run on the website as well. It's affordable. Pitch in, help us out, become a member. All right, let's move on now to recommendations. Uh, Bill, I'm really excited to hear what you have for us. Okay, so on books, ones that I've been reading recently, the terrific books by a guy named Peter Hamilton called mm-hmm. Made in Hong Kong. Trans-Pacific Networks in a New History of Globalization, and it's an extraordinary, I would think of it as a social and business history of Hong Kong's modern development, how elites in particular from Shanghai uh, were reincarnated, as it were, after 1949 to make an altogether new Hong Kong that would become first an industrial and then business and financial center and an extraordinary home to great universities in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, a sequel to that would be interesting to see because I think no place in China is changing faster at the moment than Hong Kong. Another terrific book also on the theme of education by a friend of mine, Daniel Bell, um, is called The Dean of Shandong, The Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat of a Chinese University. Uh, Daniel Bell, who had been a professor at Tsinghua University, was made Dean of the School of Political Science and Public Administration at Shandong University, the first foreigner to hold a position like that in the history of the People's Republic of China. And this is a a very entertaining uh, and insightful short memoir of what it's like to run part of a university, being neither a Chinese citizen nor a member uh, of the party, and having to deal with issues uh, that are the kind of issues that administrators all over the world uh, deal with drinking, for example, uh, <laughs> not just by students, but mostly by administrators, uh, 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 and other and other issues uh, as well. So, Dean of Shandong is a cool book. Uh, my colleagues here at Harvard, Wendy Fishman and Howard Gardner, have a terrific book called "The Real World of College," mm. uh, finding out what really matters to college students today. And what they found out was that students are not preoccupied by political correctness, free speech, or even the cost of college. They're much more concerned about their GPA and their resumes. Um, There are both challenges and uh, advice to be given as ways forward 
to improve our basic education in American colleges and universities. It's the subtitle is how it, what higher education is and what it can be. And the last thing, last thing is one of the things I like to uh, do on, on occasion, and I certainly like to research it, but I like to also taste it, has to do with wine. Mm. And um, I was given by my brother-in-law, who always, every year, gives me a new wine book, and wonderful books. This year's book is 9,000 Years of Wine, uh, wow. A World History. Uh, uh, and and, the, and the, uh, the author is a guy named Rod uh, Phillips. And turns out, if I read it correctly, you see, I'm only 1,000 years into it, so I have another 8,000 <laughs> years. You know, uh, but the first wines were grown, it appears, in part of what is today uh, Xinjiang in wow. Western People's Republic of China. So this is China's yet another Chinese, or shall we say, in this case, Xinjiang contribution uh, to global civilization. And what a contribution it is. It's funny, uh, Dan Bell's book, I want to read that. Um, Daniel used to co-own a Thai restaurant in Beijing that I would frequent. Uh, it was very good. Uh, it's called Purple Haze, um, which is pretty funny. Uh, he co-owned it with this Swedish bass player named T Tobias, or Toby, uh, who I've had the pleasure of sharing a stage with a few times. Um, played occasionally with this band that he was in called Never Say Die. It was kind of a classic metal <laughs> cover band, and there was a lot of fun Got up there and played some Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath with them. A lot of fun. All right. Um, yeah, I got to read his book. That's it's been recommended to me a few times. Yeah. Well, that maybe maybe Purple Haze. Maybe that's maybe he got the idea of that name from uh, uh, drinking uh, with other administrators in Shandong, which is a place of very <laughs> higher baijiu drinking. Very well be that. It could very well be that indeed. Okay. So my recommendation. I, I stumbled across a podcast radio drama adaptation of something I loved since I was really young, the C.S. Forrester, uh, Horatio Hornblower novels, um, which are, it's based on four of them. The, you know, he's this naval officer who was created by Forrester, who's, you know, he, set in the time of the Napoleonic War. So uh, I can't remember the names of the other two admirals he serves under, but uh, Admiral Nelson, of course, he's part of Nelson's Navy. Uh, each episode is, you know, th 30 minutes long, but very, very kind of easily digestible really old-school radio drama with the great sound effects and good voice acting, uh, perfect for long car trips. It is available on Audible Podcast for free if you are a fan of the books or of the many different you know, movie and TV adaptations of the Hornblower books, uh, which were you know really the inspiration for Star Trek, by the way. I mean, Gene Roddenberry has talked about that. Uh, this is just great stuff. I very, very much enjoy it. Well, Bill, what a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, just, just one nice thought if you have a moment. Uh, on the on the area of fiction, uh, I don't read a great deal of fiction uh, now, except uh, as long as he was alive, uh, Le Carré. Uh, but my favorite on the Chinese side there would be the the novels of Cho Xiaorong, who writes oh, yeah. these Shanghai murder mysteries, uh, Inspector Chun mysteries. And some years ago, the one that I admired the most is called Death in a Red Mandarin Dress, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which. I remember very well, but I won't give away the plot. Those are great. And uh, by the way, they're written in English. I, I originally thought they were, were written, written in, in Chinese and translated, but they are actually written originally in English by Cho Xiaolong, uh, who I hope to get onto the show one of these days. I think it would be a really fun fun show to do with him. Yeah. Uh, if he speaks half as well as he writes, I think it would be a really fun, fun episode. He's a, he's a remarkable guy. He was a graduate student at Washington University in St. Louis in comparative literature when I was a faculty member there. 
And uh, we were a remarkable talent even then. My gosh. Okay, great. Well, you'll have to to, to make an introduction for me. <laughs> sure. Thanks so much, Bill. What a pleasure it was to have you on the show. My great pleasure, Kaiser. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, please, everyone, check out the book. It's just fantastic. Uh, you will absolutely learn a ton. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at the China Project, And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.